Jesus, once again, we are gathered as people in need. And I'm a man of unclean lips. We need to hear your voice this morning, beckoning each of us to come and find healing and peace. I ask that you would speak through me, that your spirit would be present with us, and that we would come to a deeper trust in you and in your love for us. pray this in your name. Amen. So this story has, has a lot of dramatic tension, and there's a lot of rich characters. So it was really hard for me this week to try and figure out, okay, how are we going to try and attack this thing? Should I do like the regular three points and a little story and call it good? Um, so I decided not to do that, even though I'm still going to kind of do it. So just stick with me. Uh, just bear with me. We're going we're gonna to go through this story three different times and, and look at three separate things. We're going to look first at the situations of suffering, and then we'll look at the responses of faith, and finally we'll look at the consequences of love. Situations of suffering, the responses of faith, and the consequences of love. So Luke opens our story with the backdrop of a crowd who's eagerly expecting Jesus. There's this group of people that are waiting to see what's going to happen next. He's just manifested two major miracles, and they're kind of on the edge of their seat. They're falling in love with kind of the spectacle of who Jesus is and what he's been doing in their midst. But immediately, this, this kind of excitement and almost like carnival experience gets, gets really boiled down to this dark, desperate hour as Jairus, this synagogue leader, comes running up to Jesus and falls at his feet, begging him to heal his daughter who's about to die. And so Luke is, is including some details here that if we were familiar with his culture, we would probably pick up on right away. But as we read it in our, in our own culture, it's easy for us to kind of just skip right by and, and say, okay, what's the real, what's the real point of the story? But, but Luke includes some details that I think are going to help us uh, really understand what's happening uh, and, and really give us a taste for the, the amount of drama that he's setting up. And first off, it's, it's that Jairus is, is a really important man. He, we're told that he's the leader of a synagogue, and typically what that would mean is he would be in charge of the reading and teaching of the Jewish scriptures that would happen week by week in his community. So he's very, uh, for Israel, which being a very religious community, he's very, very important. He's very high on the social food chain. And uh, the fact that, that he comes and kneels at Jesus' feet almost immediately shows us that he's very undone by what's happening in his life. He's very undone by the fact that his daughter could die any moment. Because though at this point in Jesus' ministry career, he has a, a pretty good popularity with the people. He's anything but popular with religious insiders. So it's pretty strange for Jairus, a religious insider, to come running up to him and kneeling before him. But that's exactly what he does, does because he's overcome with the suffering that he's facing. And Luke tells us, why this suffering is so deep in just a very short phrase. His daughter, his only daughter, is dying. And she's a girl of about 12 years old. And so immediately we think, ah, you know, a young one struck down at, at such a young age. But it's actually even a bigger deal than that in, in this culture because this girl was, was on the verge of womanhood. She was getting ready to enter into that age where, where marital um, agreements were about to be made. I mean... It, in our culture, it's almost like graduating high school or college. Like, she was in the prime of her life. Everything was ahead of her, and yet she lays dying. Death 
the familiar alien of this world is attempting to claim another young life. And we see in the behavior of Jairus that death is a great equalizer. All of Jairus' social standing, all of his religious abilities were powerless in the face of death. And all of us have these moments, and if we haven't had them, we will have them at some point in our life when we start to realize that almost all of the things we've worked for, almost all of the things that we've held as important day to day become pale and powerless in the face of death. And even, you know, we try to kind of satisfy ourselves by saying, well, I'm going to leave a good legacy, right? I'm going to go down in the history books, and I'm going to, you know, it's going to be my work is going to carry on after me, right? That's how we kind of try to sedate ourselves into thinking that what we're doing is going to be okay. But I think Woody Allen uh, gives us some good direction here when he says, I don't want to achieve immortality through my work. I want to achieve immortality through not dying. I don't want to live on in the hearts of my countrymen. I want to live on in my apartment. Right? That's immortality. Not living on in some collective memory. Jairus is desperate. He's pleading with this miracle-working rabbi, hoping against hope that he can come and heal his daughter before it's too late. So we're already in the, in the midst of a pretty grim situation, but then uh, what Luke does here is what uh, dramatists and authors call raising the stakes. He makes it even more intense. So if you've ever read a good spy book or, or watched a good spy movie, there's always this moment, right, when our hero, he's, he knows what he needs to do in order to save the girl or save the world or whatever it is, and, but he's got to hurry, right? There's, there's a very short window of time there that he has in order to accomplish what he needs to accomplish. And so, remember Tom Cruise running in every Mission Impossible movie, right? He's always in a hurry. He's running. And then what happens? Invariably what happens? There's a 90-year-old man with a rickety cart full of like 200 watermelons who gets right in his way. Right? And slows the hero down. And we're in the audience going, get out of the way, right? And, of course, the old man, he doesn't know. He doesn't know that the hero's in a hurry. Jairus is in need of a hero. And in his mind, he's in need of a hero in a hurry. His daughter is dying. She's very close to death. And he needs Jesus to get there before she dies so that he can have a chance to heal her. And we're told that the crowd is so thick that it begins to crush Jesus as he's on his way to Jairus' house. And, and that crushing is going to become important in a moment. We're going to look at that a little bit later. But in the midst of this crowd, there emerges this woman, a nameless, outcast woman, who's so full of fear that she emerges stealing up behind Jesus. And she's a woman familiar with suffering. For 12 years... This woman has been suffering from a discharge of blood. Now, this was, this was a, a chronic illness that wasn't, obviously, wasn't immediately life-threatening. She'd lived with it for 12 years. But socially, it was completely debilitating. Uh, we're not really sure about anything about this woman. We, we don't even know her name. But uh, we could kind of speculate on, on her potential situations. On the one hand, if, if she's married, okay, her, her chance of having kids is over. It's not going to happen. And in this culture, that was what gave a woman status. That was what gave her meaning. And so all of her meaning and her ability to create status for herself is ripped away, if she's married. 
beyond just, just the inability to have children, we're told in the parallel story to this in Mark's gospel that this woman has actually spent all of her money on, on seeking medical attention to get cured from this disease. And it's unclear in the language whether it, it's like quack medicine men, you know, kind of taking advantage of her. But what is clear is that she's left completely financially destitute. She has absolutely no financial resources left at her disposal. But beyond all of that, in the religious culture of Israel, this woman would have been considered ritually unclean. Though her medical condition is not transmittable, her ritual impurity is highly, highly contagious. One touch is all it would take for anyone near her to become unclean. So, even if she is married, her husband wouldn't be able to even touch her. If she's not married, there's no man in her community that would even give her a second glance. Imagine 12 years of uncleanness. What that means for her is she is precluded from any sort of normal social engagement. She's precluded from temple worship. She's not able to go with the people of God to the temple, to the feasts, to the time of sacrifice, any of it. She's precluded in a very real sense from the presence of God himself. Can you imagine? Can you imagine the emotional pain that would take place after 12 years of being cut off from everyone? It's worse than death. You're living with it before your very eyes every moment. Think about it. 12 years. Do you even remember Y2K? You remember stockpiling food and buying a solar oven? You remember way back when? That wasn't even 12 years ago. Imagine. Imagine being unable to celebrate that New Year's Eve with your friends. Imagine being unable to hug your family that night or every night after that until now. If you're a regular churchgoer, imagine being precluded from coming in those doors for 624 weeks. Imagine going without human contact, human touch, for 4,380 days. No shaking of hands, no patting on the back, no arm around your shoulder, and all of the loneliness that you feel cannot be comforted by a single other person. This woman is an outcast in every sense of the word. And this is the situation of suffering. Do you see the the tension that Luke is building for us? For Jairus, 12 years hasn't been nearly long enough. He remembers like yesterday celebrating with his wife the birth of their daughter. And all of those moments of joy, those little moments that have now become memories, have come and gone far too fast. And yet for this woman, 12 years has been an eternity. She has no memory of human contact, no memory of joy. For every day that Jairus has enjoyed the life of his daughter, this woman has been an outcast, spending her hours in lonely solitude. But don't forget, our hero is supposed to be in a hurry. So, I mean, come on. This woman is, is suffering beyond reason, right? And yet, it's not life-threatening. 
She could have caught Jesus on his return trip. She could have caught him next week. But in the time that's eaten up for Jesus to interact with this nameless, outcast woman, Jairus, the leader of the synagogue, the, the probably one of the most important men in the entire community, the guy who's in charge of the religious teaching, which, by the way, included the fact that this woman had transgressed the ceremonial laws by touching someone else with her uncleanness. This Jairus is advised to stop bothering the teacher because it's too late. In the time that Jesus took to interact with this woman, Jairus' daughter has died. The suffering is absolutely palpable in this story. But now I'd like us to circle back and look at the importance of faith throughout this story. Faith is a very, very important concept, uh, obviously in, in the Christian world and in the Christian scriptures, but especially in the Gospel of Luke. It's a very important concept. And actually, at the beginning of this chapter, Luke recounts for us uh, the parable of the sower. So Jesus is there, and he's talking to this whole crowd of people, and he recounts for them this parable. He says, A farmer went out to sow his seed. And as he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path. It was trampled on, and the birds ate it up. Some fell on rocky ground, and when it came up, the plants withered because they had no moisture. Other seed fell among the thorns, which grew up with it and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up and yielded a crop a hundred times more than was sown. And so if you've ever read through any of the Gospels, you're aware that the disciples, the guys that were closest to Jesus, kind of wandered around in this state of constant befuddlement. They're always confused. They, they never really get what's going on. And so, of course, they get Jesus alone after he tells this parable, and they're like, okay, seriously? Can you help me out here? What, what was all that about the seed and the, and the paths and all these different things? And so Jesus responds by explaining it to them. The seed represents the word of God. It's the word of the gospel. And the different soils represent different hearts of different people. There are different faith responses to the hearing of that word. And so there are some that hear the word, but before faith actually takes root, the seed is trampled and scattered and taken away. There are others who joyfully receive the gospel, but, but when testing and trial comes and life gets hard, it's shown that there is no root of faith in their life, and faith flees away. Others believe, but their faith actually gets choked out by the worries of life. And then the final category of people that believe, and faith takes root. And it's almost like in, in weaving together the events of Jesus' life and his teaching, Luke is actually giving us a, a real-life playing out of this parable in the story that we're looking at this morning. And so the first character that we need to look at in this story is the character of the crowd, which literally is functioning as like a single unit, a single entity, one character. And, and we saw in the beginning that the crowd welcomes Jesus. They're expectant. Jesus has been traveling from village to village, healing people, speaking in parables, preaching the gospel to the poor. And up until this point, in Luke's gospel especially, Jesus has been welcomed by the crowd. They're, they're very warm to him. They're excited about what he's doing. They want to see what's going to happen next. They've learned to expect that the miraculous can happen whenever Jesus is around. But here in, in, in chapters 8 and 9 of Luke's gospel, it's the turning point. And we see it in our story because as Jesus arrives at Jairus' house and the mourners are already there wailing about the death of this girl, and Jesus says euphemistically to them, 
She's asleep. He's hinting at the power of resurrection is actually in your presence. So get ready. What do they do? The crowd mocks. They've lost their sense of, of wonder and expectation, and they begin to mock. And from this point on in Luke's gospel, the crowds disperse from Jesus. They continually move away from him as things get weirder and weirder in his ministry. Until eventually, their laughter turns to angry derision, and they're, they're shouting, crucify, crucify. The crowd is in danger of being the first soil the soil where the seed of the word was sown along the path. They hear the word, but they don't have faith. They don't actually believe what they're seeing. With Jairus, his faith is shown right away in the very beginning by the simple fact that he, as a religious leader, a powerful man, would come and throw himself at the feet of this renegade rabbi. At the beginning of the story, Jairus has faith in the face of hope. Right? His daughter is still alive. He's heard that Jesus can work miracles, and if he can just get Jesus there in time, it might happen. He might save his daughter. But toward the end of the story, Jesus actually asks Jairus to have faith in the face of despair. His daughter has already died before Jesus even has a chance to get there. Jairus is in danger of being the second soil, one whose faith is robbed in the time of testing. He had faith in the beginning. Will it be robbed when he finds out that his daughter has died before Jesus has a chance to get to her? Jesus says, before Jairus can even ask the question, what could you possibly do now? Jesus looks him in the eye and says, don't be afraid. Just believe. With the woman, it's actually harder to tell at first what's happening with her faith. It's very clear that she is filled with fear. Luke tells us that she trembles when she comes forward. And it was most likely her fear that caused her to actually kind of sneak up behind Jesus and just grab him by the cloak rather than ask him face-to-face for healing. And of course, her fear is understandable. Her life has been filled with disappointment, abandonment, and embarrassment. She has constantly been rejected. She has constantly been disappointed by those who said they could heal her. And so she has this one last shot at a normal life. And the one guy that she needs, the one person that could possibly heal her is what? He's engaged with a powerful religious insider. He's engaged with everything that she's not. Her fear almost causes her to hold back. Because if she were to come to Jesus and ask for healing, she would have to, in front of Jairus, this religious leader, and the entire crowd, and Jesus, admit that she is unclean. Go through the whole embarrassing story all over again, and who knows? Maybe Jesus would have just turned her away. In the beginning, her faith is timid. It's fearful. It's like a smoldering wick that's about to go out. And yet, it retains a boldness because she actually reaches out to touch Jesus. And then she's healed. Immediately, finally. Strangely, though she's healed, she's still fearful. Those strange questions that Jesus asks, who touched me? In the midst of a crushing crowd, Jesus says, who touched me? And then what does Peter tell us? All denied it. Everyone, including this woman. What is she afraid of? She's already been healed. 
She's afraid because she knows that what she did took so much audacity. Here she is, an unclean woman, reaching out to touch a rabbi. So Jesus asked this question, and of course, Peter, Mr. Befuddled himself, is like, seriously? I mean, everyone's being touched by everyone, right? This, this crowd is like packed. They're jostling. Everyone's bumping into everyone. How can you even ask that question? And Jesus responds. He says, I know someone touched me. I know power has gone out from me. Now, this is not just some magical power that Jesus can't control, okay? He doesn't go around electrocuting people when they bump into him by accident. This is the power that Jesus retains within the life of the Trinity. This is the power of healing. It's the power of resurrection. It's the power of God himself. So Jesus isn't asking questions in an investigative way. He's not trying to figure out what just happened. He's very aware that this woman was behind him the whole time. He's very aware of everything that had gone on in her life. He knew exactly what had happened. And what he's doing is he's saying to the crowd, I know everything. He's saying to this woman, I know everything. I know you're unclean. And he's beckoning her to come forward in the fullness of faith and declare herself as one that was unclean and has been healed. You see, the very word that Luke uses to describe this crowd as crushing and choking is the very same word that he used to describe those weeds that grew up around the seed of faith and tried to choke it out. And what Jesus is telling this woman, in a sense, he's looking out of the corner of his eye at her as he's asking very bizarre questions, but what he's really saying is don't let the weeds of this crowd or your own sense of embarrassment or your own fear of rejection choke out the seed of faith that's in your heart. And so the woman comes forward. She gets what Jesus is doing. He knows everything. She comes forward still trembling, and yet in faith, she boldly proclaims everything. Her uncleanness, her audacity to touch uh, this Jesus, to, to pass her uncleanness to him with intention. And then she tells of her immediate healing. And listen to what Jesus says to this poor, nameless woman. He doesn't say, patient, you're cured. He says, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. Jesus knows that this woman was not just in need of a doctor. She was not just in need of a physical, medical cure. She needed to be embraced. She needed a father. She needed a family. And Jesus becomes all of those things for her. And though her faith was timid and weak, though she entered our story unclean, she departs healed and cleansed in peace as the daughter of God. What a testimony to Jairus. As this woman departs clean and claimed, his servant approaches to bring the news of his daughter's death, and Jesus says, don't be afraid. Just believe. These are the responses of faith. And finally, let's look at the the consequences of love. What is it that Jesus is doing in this story, and and how does that prepare us to understand what the church is celebrating in the Easter season? So Robert Murray McChain is is an old Scottish minister, um, and he wrote in his diary of of a leper colony 
in Africa. And this colony was, was gated off and, and walled off in a very you know, separate part away from the rest of society. And it was made very clear that those who enter here are not getting back out. So when you, when you went to the community and, and you were discovered to have leprosy, you were shipped off to this colony and you entered in to serve a life sentence. You, you were there for good. There simply was no cure for this infectious disease. And so you're pretty much, uh, in order to keep it from spreading, there, there's just no return from, from this place into the world. And McShane tells the story of two Moravian missionaries, these two guys who, who didn't have a hint of leprosy. And they come by this colony, and they see all of these people shut off, unable to have human connection, human interaction, unable to see love and experience love. And these two missionaries decide they're going to go in and take the love of Jesus to these people, and they went, and they were never heard from again. They knew going in, they wouldn't get out alive. That was the consequence of their love. As I alluded to earlier, for this woman in our story to reach out and touch Jesus, there was a great amount of audacity involved in that action. In fact, it was actually unlawful for her to do that. Well, her uncleanness is transmittable, and it's not in a sense of guilt. It's not that Jesus is being made guilty of sin, but he is being made unclean by her touching him. It's a ritual uncleanness. And though it's not irreversible, it would require that other person to go through some ritual purification. And again, think about it. Jesus is in a hurry to get to Jairus' daughter, and yet this woman could possibly have interrupted him for several days to get ritually cleansed. And yet she still reaches out and touch him, touches him. And it's, it's interesting that Jesus never reprimands her for doing this. Even though it's unlawful, he never reprimands her. Rather, Jesus allows her uncleanness to come upon himself. And in the power of the Trinity, he heals her and he gives her the status of daughter. And then at the end of the story, we see an even stranger thing. Another way for a member of, uh, of the community of Israel to become unclean was to have contact with a dead body. So Jesus walks into Jairus' home. He's been told the daughter is dead. There's her body lying on the bed, and he walks right up to her and grabs her by the hand. He touches a dead body intentionally. And then notice what he does. Just like he does for the woman, he gives her the status of daughter. He says, my child, rise up. What's happening? If Jesus has the power to raise the dead, okay, premise, Jesus has the power to raise the dead, why does he have to touch him? He didn't touch Lazarus. The answer is he doesn't. There's no need for him to touch this girl. There's no need for that to happen. There's no need for him to touch this girl. There's no need for him to become unclean. If you have the power to heal and raise the dead, why are you even in the room? He could have just said it on the walk. Why did he even allow the unclean woman to come up from behind him? That didn't need to happen. He could have just healed her with his mind, right? If you're that powerful, there's no need for this to happen. What sort of a savior, if he has the power to save, would actually enter the mess at all? And this 
is the strangeness of the gospel, and it's the strangeness of the Easter season. Because the story of the gospel is not a story of a capricious God seeking vengeance to quell his anger. Rather, it's the story of a God whose love runs so deep that he would take flesh upon himself and enter into the mess and rebellion of his very own creatures. Jesus didn't enter this world walking around pointing out all of our mistakes. He doesn't come in and offer us tips on how we could have done it better next time. Jesus walks up to each one of us. He reaches out his hand and he says, I know all of your uncleanness. Give it over to me. Hold on to me. Jesus takes up our pain. He bears our suffering. He takes on the weight of our rebellion until it crushes him. He becomes sin for us so that we can be reconciled. And it is his love that compels him to do this. Perhaps you're here this morning as a religious insider. Maybe you know all the terms, you know all the stories, you know the difference between Noah and Moses. You don't get those guys confused. What is it that you're supposed to do as a religious insider? What is it that you should do as a result of this story? Do exactly what Jairus did. You come and you fall at the feet of your Savior. You give up your self-made status. You give up all of the things that you think have made you worthy, and you ask Jesus for resurrection. That's what you do as a religious insider. Perhaps you're here as a fearful outsider. Perhaps you have been so rejected time and time again by religious communities, by Christian communities, whether it's your family or an old pastor or a priest or maybe even just the voices in your own head constantly telling you you will never be good enough, the good news is it doesn't matter. Jesus loves you. What are you to do if you're a fearful outsider? Reach out. Reach out in trembling, timid faith and grab a hold of him. That's it. But perhaps... You're here this morning, and, and you would say, I've been healed. I know I've been healed, and yet I'm still fearful. I'm still unclean. I keep falling into the same patterns over and over and over again, and I'm afraid that this time he might not have me back. What are you to do? If you've been healed by Jesus, then follow in the footsteps of this woman. Come to this table. Take hold of his body and in faith declare that you are one who is unclean but has been healed by the love of a Savior. Let's pray. Jesus, it is so incredible that you not only have the power to save us, but that your love has compelled you to enter into the mess that we have made that you have entered in and taken on the pain and punishment of our rebellion, that you have borne our pain and our sorrow.
Jesus, I ask that for those of us that are feeling painful and sorrowful this morning, that you would reach out to us, that you would become real to us, that our faith would not be snatched away by the worries of this world or by testing or by trial, but that you would become even more real in your love to us as we come to your table. We pray this in your name. Amen.